This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, November 28th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, perhaps you have heard about the Russian skating show Ice Age. Ice Age. No, it's not Ray Romano as a talking woolly mammoth. In fact, this show was a greater affront to good taste than that was. Tatiana Navga, Olympian married to a Vladimir Putin henchman. Sorry, not hench, right hand. Vladimir Putin, right hand man. Donned the outfit, did Tatiana Navka, the outfit of a concentration camp victim, and she wore the yellow star of David, and with her partner, she acted out a Holocaust-themed routine on ice. I know, no sparkles, what a sacrifice. Now, this is not a good thing, not a good thing. But if the thing itself was a misstep or a mistake or a misgate, the reaction to it has also not been a good thing. So, Dancing with the Stars is perhaps not the area to act out such a sensitive subject matter. Though those ice skaters do love the skating backwards while extending your two arms forward as you recede from your partner thing, nothing says loss like the half-toe loop into the Sophie's Choice. But it was a case of the internet just piling on and taking such deep offense and horror at this act of insensitivity. Though... The defense of the act, put forth by the Russian propaganda arm RT, made it much, much worse. Here, I'll quote for some RT. But instead of focusing on the delicate matter of the skating performance that centered on life's triumph over death, right, (laughs) if you criticize it, you're against life's triumph over death. Continuing, critics lashed out at the pair, who smiled as they skated wearing concentration camp uniforms. Critics on social media, as well as some Western media outlets, neglected Navka's skating talent and instead chose to focus on the fact that she recently married Dmitry Peskov, the spokesman for Vladimir Putin. That alleged political tie, alleged, what alleged? You just said it in the last sentence seemed to have overburdened the true talent shown on ice to the song Beautiful That Way, which was featured in the Italian-language Oscar-winning film Life is Beautiful. RT went on to do that thing that you gotta do. If you want to say that something wasn't anti-Semitic, you gotta quote a Jew. Breitbart does it. Trump does it. It's not anti-Semitism. Jews like it. So here's, here's what RT did. The performance has been welcomed by many, including members of the Russian Jewish community, The president of the Holocaust Foundation, Ala Gerber, said the Holocaust wasn't only about extermination. It was also a colossal resistance of human spirit and human dignity. Even in the most bizarre conditions, the people continued living till their last moment they wrote, they sang, they loved. If in that ice dance dedicated to the Holocaust, all that was present, 
I see nothing wrong with it. I saw the dance and all that was not present. The Jews were not exactly liking the performance. That was one Jew with a conditional non-disapproval. But really, aren't we brushing past the original sin here, the event that set off this whole argument, the real villain in the rink? No, not the Holocaust. We've already assumed that's unspeakable. I'm talking about the movie. Life is beautiful. Let's play pretend in a death camp. So we paint a fantasy of triumph of the human spirit. Life, it is beautiful. And Roberto Benigni climbing on the back of chairs to win the Academy Award. Oh, Principe, Shawera, you laugh, it is so beautiful. And everyone pretending this guy deserves celebration, not a smack. Oh, no, me dispiace. That was what's wrong. If this guy wins an Oscar 17 years later, you know you're going to have someone in some far-off land misinterpreting the Holocaust through the Life is Beautiful lens. So the Russian ice dancers get booed, but once more, Roberto Benigni skates. On the show today, I spiel about how Trump is distracting us from misdeeds that if we just paid attention, we couldn't do anything about. But first... I bring you the man who made Freakonomics a household name in households that read nonfiction and listen to public radio. Now, he is out with a new podcast. Stephen Dubner is here to tell us something we don't know. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Public radio quiz shows and now podcast quizzes offer a variety of pleasures, if not a variety of titles. Says you, what do you know? Ask me another. Wait, wait, don't tell me. How's that? Come again. I knew it. Hold <laughs> on. Are you a giraffe? And now to this list, we add, tell me something I don't know. Now, I have hosted a show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Stephen Dubner is the impresario behind Freakonomics Radio and the host of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So let's meet in the middle over the word tell. Okay, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> it's a deal. Although now that you say, um, hold on, are you a giraffe? That's plainly, that's the show I wanted to host. Yeah. I just didn't think of that in time. That was the working title. <clears throat> and at the end, it always is a giraffe. <laughs> so with a lot of these shows, uh, whatever the rules are, are secondary. It's just, it's either a, a word show or a news show. And it's just uh, essentially a vessel for people to be funny about something in the world of nonfiction. But as I understand, you actually wanted to do something a little bit different with your quiz show. You know, here's the thing. I've been a that's, that's also one of my favorite. That is also that is also <laughs> a show, um, and sometimes funny. Um, you know, I've been a journalist for a long time. Like even in my family, I was the youngest of eight, and we had a family newspaper. And my dad was a newspaper man, so I always loved journalism. And uh, part of the reason I liked it is because I was very shy, and actually I still am super shy. But you kind of learn to cover and compensate. And I loved the the notion that journalism let you go up to strangers, often in you know weird circumstances where someone's in trouble or hurt even, and ask them questions that you wouldn't really um, feel you have the right to ask. And so I always loved that question asking ability or permission. But, you know, you're always looking for ways to get better at it. And, and then especially when I started writing stuff like Freakonomics, I was dealing with a lot of really smart people, way smarter than I 
not only educated better, but smarter, you know, computationally. And they're doing this kind of research that they've been spending years and years and years doing. And then here I come up with a notebook trying to understand it and trying to get a story out of it and trying to relate to it. And I found that one of the best ways of starting the conversation was to say, you know, if you're a computational neuroscientist or if you're a macroeconomist working on development stuff, you know, I would try, like most journalists, to come up with a question that sounded smart and that sounded informed. And I realized that the best way to do it was just say, hey, you know, tell me something I don't know about computational neuroscience or tell me something I don't know about development economics. And I found that the best people um, took that bait beautifully and they would do kind of a macro micro mix. It would really and it would usually in, in, involve a story. And so that just became kind of a crutch of mine, you know, on a plane or you meet someone. Hey, tell me something I don't know about this thing that you do. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a live show where you've got a live audience and contestants that are that are drawn from the public? And rather than having a quiz show where we, the journalists or the arbiters of the, the wisdom, have the answer and we make you guys look kind of silly by trying to guess it, right? That's the trivia thing. I thought, what if we flip it and have the smart people or the people with the knowledge come from, you know, the world? And then we assemble a panel of kind of experts to yeah. judge how good it is. It's essentially a panel of inexperts, smart people, but <laughs> inexperts and contestants who are experts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also kind of like that it flips the dynamic so that the famous people who are on the panel are suddenly put in the position of less power because the contestant actually has the juice. OK, so to explain this, I'm going to play a clip of uh, a recent episode. Give me something that you think went well and we'll play that. So there's a guy who was a contestant, a guy named Dr. Donald Redelmeyer, who's a researcher in Toronto, University of Toronto, who brought in a really great kind of riddle about the perils of voting in America, and the peril wasn't exactly what you might have thought. Okay, panelists, um, elections are a really important event in any powerful democracy. However, tell me, when is the most dangerous time to vote for the U.S. president on election day? You mean like the time of, time of the day. day? The time of day. Classically, the polls are open from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. local time. And, and people are getting killed? <laughs> yeah, we figure that the average American presidential election leads to about uh, uh, 25 individuals who died or are seriously disabled. Is this that suicide? That would not have occurred otherwise. <laughs> is it? No, is, it's not suicide. Sorry, would that, that, same number, would that same number die at, in that period on any other day? Oh, uh, the way the research is done is by comparing Election Day Tuesday to the Tuesday immediately before and the Tuesday immediately after. Is it right before 8 p.m., people driving fast to get to the polling station in time to vote? That's pretty oh. close. I would love to have this be a game that um, is played in schools. I think it would do a really nifty thing for the educational model. And, you know, this is happening a little bit in education now. Some people use what they call the flipped classroom where kids are given homework of watching a video. Then you come in and you talk about it the next day. Or it doesn't have to be a video. It could be read something. So rather than the teacher kind of giving all the knowledge, giving all the wisdom, now go and absorb it, it kind of happens the other way around. So I like the idea of doing like, you know, student version of this or comic version or, 
you know, the recent election showed this. Almost all of us are really good at siloing ourselves off really well and usually not noticing how siloed we are. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I like, you know, one reason I wanted to do this show is I just love to learn from people that I, I'm not going to bump into in my tiny little silo that, you know, I, along with everybody else, constructed. So right. So it might idea. be a good it might be good to do a show uh, with all agriculture facts or a show with all blue-collar car repair facts, stuff like yep. that. Fascinating <clears throat> yep. facts that don't have to come from the world of academics. Yep, I agree. And I noticed that you, as the host, uh, occupy a different role than most hosts of quiz shows who are supposed to kind of be the most sparkling personality out there. You're more the <laughs> I could. You're the inquisitor. You're the uh, you're the guy who prods things along, and you're more likely to ask a question than go for a laugh. That was your way of saying I'm unsparkling, plainly. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I mean, look, I I went to the trouble to create a show and. It was a lot of trouble to do it, and I didn't do it so that I could try to be a bad version of a stand-up comic. Because, you know, look, I love I love good comics, and I know I couldn't be one if I tried. The only thing I'm halfway decent at is being, you know, what I do, which is be a journalist, ask people questions. And so people might be expecting the host to be kind of more um, naturally or unnaturally charming or sparkling, <laughs> as you put it. I'm there to have a good time for me, which means I get to <laughs> I get to ask the questions. And I like it's funny. Last night I went to a uh, a school. Do you have you have kids, right? Yep. School age kids, yep. Mike. You know, there's like 800 nights a year where you have to go to some school parent class curriculum function, whatever. And last night there was one where there were all these parents from my one of my kids' advisories, like their homeroom, basically, and we're meeting all the parents. There was this one woman, we started talking, we were in a group of like eight or ten people, and I didn't realize until about 30 minutes into it that I had just started to interrogate her. And she was talking about her dad, who somehow we were talking about the traffic fatalities, and that got onto brain injuries, and that got onto Alzheimer's, and it turned out that her dad had gotten Alzheimer's and died in a very brutal, sad way, but his life up until then had been awesome. And at this family, at this parent gathering, I just began like in, in, interrogating this woman about her dad, but she was enjoying it. I don't mean to say she wasn't. Yeah. And she got to talk about her dad for half an hour and we were all kind of listening. And I realized that that behavior of mine is incredibly obnoxious. Like it worked out okay in that setting. But in a different setting, it could have been a real problem. So the show basically is a, a legitimate kind of legal way for me to just be obnoxious and ask a lot of questions. Right. This is why you have to. Uh, this is why you have to build this incredibly complex <laughs> apparatus just so you can get away with your, you know, just so you can paper over your social shortcomings. That's the racket. You figured it out. Now, Jody, yep. I want to ask you about one more thing. One more institution on the show. Jody Avrigan has been uh, playing the role of fact checker. Uh, Jody's a friend of mine. It's a good role because people will come up, they'll assert things, and how do you know it's real? I sometimes have this problem with, say, social sciences or things that are asserted in a newscast. A study shows X, Y, Z. Well, how do you know it's real? So Jody is there to fact check it. But has he ever really pushed back on one of the uh, <laughs> assertions? The role of the fact checker, well, we call them the real-time human fact checker, and they are. In other words, if something comes up they in are the human. conversation, <laughs> we can they are, they're definitely human. They're human, yeah. We do want them to actually be the fact checker, but we also know because, as I said, we pre-produce 
the show to some degree. We know that the people that we are inviting onto the stage to tell us something amazing, we know they're not making it up already. Now, there might come up a thread in the conversation or the panelists might introduce something that we're not sure of. So that's kind of where the live fact checker needs to jump on it. But also what I like about the fact checker is they'll also add some element, some other content, because Again, even though it's kind of a game show and even though it's kind of a comedy show, my overall goal is to deliver, you know, as much like interesting content for people listening to say, oh, wow, I I had no idea that's the way that worked. So that's really the the main goal. Although it would be awesome if one time the fact checker just (laughs) totally busted a contestant. Wait a minute. You're Ferdinand Damara. You are the great (laughs) imposter, sir. There's a warrant out for your arrest. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You know what? Jody did that. Jody busted Malcolm Gladwell in Uh the first time. The first time we ever did this, we piloted it uh, as an episode of Freakonomics Radio. Now it's like a full-blown spinoff, but then it was just an episode of Freakonomics. Malcolm, so we have this round at the end that's called the Wheel of Something Something, changes (laughs) names all the time, Wheel of Maximum Danger, where we take the panelists and we spin the wheel and they get a random topic and they have to like in 60 seconds tell us something interesting we don't know about that topic. Now, that is impossible, right? Because someone like you, you could do it. You know a lot of stuff. You're good at thinking on your feet. But not everybody is the BS artist that you are, Mike. And so, you know, sometimes people essentially come up with a story that they think might be true. So Malcolm, Malcolm's topic, if I recall correctly, was bread. Uh And he told this really great story about what I believe was focaccia. And I believe the story was that, did you know that focaccia is actually not some ancient Roman bread, but it was invented only in the 1970s or 80s by a baker in Milan, da, da, da. And Jody, in like 20 seconds, fact-checked and said, Malcolm, that is not true. Focaccia <laughs> is, in fact, an ancient Roman bread. Now, poor Malcolm, it turned out that he just named the wrong bread. It was like ciabatta oh, was God. the modern bread. But, no, you're right. It can happen where the fact-checker will actually bust someone live. And I must say, I don't think Jody's ever gotten greater pleasure than busting Malcolm <laughs> live in, in the game show there. Yeah. And then he was like, and also, blink reactions are bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Jody. Yeah. yeah. And you, you, don't know need, Jody you don't need 10,000 hours of practice. <laughs> Thank you. Done. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> the new game show is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks a ton. And now the spiel. Trump is making a lot of noise to distract you from the important things. There is the question of whether that's strategy or a byproduct of his hair-trigger temper, his thin skin, his fragile ego, all the other metaphors that takes a substance that is flimsy or precarious and juxtaposes it with a personal trait that you'd want to be solid. Here are some other idioms that should exist but don't. His porcelain egg self-image. His mountaintop cell phone reception character. His sea turtle egg disposition. So is the crazy fusillade of tweets on topics from theatrical reviews to casual though baseless assertions of massive voter fraud? What range? Is that just a case of Trump being rubbed the wrong way and needing to rub back? Or is it grand strategy? Is it a devious design of throwing the media or the right-thinking public off the scent of what's truly important? The answer is, it doesn't matter. So in the last couple of days, we have heard, you fools, you distractible, unserious ninnies. His Hamilton tweets were meant to distract you from the Trump University settlement. We have the retweet stats to prove it. 
And then more recently, oh, the idiotic media falls again for claims of voter fraud. That's throwing you off the scent of the larger issue, which is potential conflicts of interest in a Trump presidency. But let's follow the logic out. Let's take Hamilton. Let's accept the premises. The Hamilton tweets were a ruse. Sure. The ridiculous thing he said about safe spaces and disrespect to Mike Pence, kind of an Easter egg of umbrage. Sure. Let him hatch. He knows social media will go crazy because the real issue is Trump you. If the public realized about Trump you, well, what? Well, what then? There'd be a recall. There'd be a mass awakening to the idea that Donald Trump might be a con man. No one ever put forth that idea before. I'm a New Yorker. And I know a con when I see one. But there's something else regulators could do to claw back money or punish Trump more? No, nothing could be done. There was something that could have been done. It was called the election. The majority of voters in state with the majority of electoral votes didn't do it. Not that they didn't know about it. They did not care about it. Maybe they constructed a way to rationalize it. Or maybe more Occam's razor. They really didn't care. Now there's the argument over the lack of coverage before the election on Trump's potential conflicts of interest. True, the media didn't cover it as much as other Trump complications. So here you have a candidate who promises a Muslim registry, promises a return to torture, promises mass deportations, promises to sue women who specifically accuse him of what he generally admitted to doing, wants a tariff that no expert would say would be anything less than disastrous, is a con man in every truth-setting website, set the record for lies by a public figure, whose policy prescriptions just don't seem like they're going to help. We covered all that, but only if we covered the potential conflicts of interest. We did, only if we covered it more. You fools! It was the emoluments clause that was going to bring him down. Out of our coal miners in Appalachia, they just want to hear that you understand their pain. They can't parse all these complicated stories about policies. With one exception, the emoluments clause. You need to be strong in the Second Amendment, and the first article, ninth section, eighth clause of the Constitution. Now, I want to be really fair. You can't argue that the ultimate arbiter of what the media should have done is would it have changed voters' minds. You got to do good journalism regardless. Some voters are post-truth. Some see themselves, like the gist, as pre-post-truth, but they just don't subscribe to the particular publications that your stories are airing in. Internal studies show that out-of-work coal miners don't even subscribe to the Monday to Friday times, and some even eschew the weekender. Though it was the chairman of United Mine Workers Local 415 who answered the famous question, How many sections are you fluent in? And it was an out-of-work machinist in Macomb County who noted, I just went to Spain, and the travel section helped me plan my trip. Uh Uh-huh. But what if the travel section had just highlighted Trump's properties throughout the world? Well, what then? What? We would have added another pebble to the long list of things Americans should have cared about, but didn't. Chris Hayes is right. He argues that Trump was covered with the presumption that he'd lose, and therefore there was less scrutiny on the conflict of interest stories. Not that there wasn't any coverage, but I agree. If you were running neck and neck in the polls, we'd have had more conflict of interest stories. And you got to make the point that the Clinton Foundation, her conflicts there might have been less egregious than Trump's and they were covered more. And that was because, and Matt Iglesias argues this, those stories were covered on the presumption that Hillary was going to win. But let's say it was a 50-50 race and it was covered as a 50-50 race. What? America would be better informed? Any American who wanted to could be pretty well informed. There was really enough information to make a good vote in this election. Some Americans chose not to, in my opinion. Trump would be acting differently if the media covered his conflict of interest stories? I doubt it. 
I subscribe to the criticism that we should have covered the forecasting model with larger grains of salt. What I'm saying is we should have covered the election. It would have been good if we had covered the election as a 50-50 race. They use closer to reality. But is there really anyone out there who only voted for Trump because they thought he wouldn't win? I mean, if you ask people who run campaigns, well, they'll say they can make hay out of whatever coverage they get. You know, coverage that downplays their chances. That becomes, we're going to shock the world. But it is much better to have coverage that reflects that you have a good chance to win, right? Then you argue, we're, we're right in this, people. We need your vote. Basically, the entire discussion presupposes a world that the election proved does not exist. A world where well-documented acts of journalism strike blows for truth, where people attend to the exact stories broken by big newspapers and the networks who book big newspaper reporters, where fake news is seen as fake and not news, where news is seen as news and not fake, where people vote with their heads and not their hearts, where people's heads have been developed over years of quality schooling, or media that rewards logic and thought-through decisions, not reptilian brain button-clicking. Come on. We certainly had imperfect press coverage. You might argue it was worse than imperfect. It was derelict. So let's give the press a C or a C plus. The candidate still gets an F minus. And that's it for today's show. Just producers Mary Wilson and Chris Berube will be trampolining to music from and inspired by Picasso's Guernica. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Clog Dance will honor the victims of the potato famine. Andy Bowers has put together a rhythmic gymnastics routine which remembers and honors the Armenian genocide. Or, as our Turkish affiliates call it, it remembers and honors the contributions of ribbons and hoops to society's progress. The Gist, now performing the repeal of Glass-Steagall, a synchronized swim in five parts. Umperu depuru duperu, and thanks for listening.